it's Tom Kradza, and we are having a population and explosion in Ontario. And although some media outlets in Ontario and Canada are talking about population, nobody is talking about how serious it is. So over the next few weeks, we're going to do a podcast on this topic. Stay tuned for it. Wait to hear some of the data. It's completely blowing my mind. And the reason it blows my mind is for many reason, reasons, obviously the social services that we need to just maintain the standard of living that we all enjoy here in this beautiful country we call Canada, but also the opportunity that it gives real estate investors who are aware of the situation. And the data is a little bit cumbersome to come across. Like it's in bits and pieces. Stats Canada has a little bit. Ontario has a little bit. The, you know, um, it's, it's not really in one central place. So stay tuned for that. I don't really give out previews to other podcasts too often, but I'm obviously pumped about that one. So there you go. So on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, though, we have the wonderfully amazing Jerry Gatos. Jerry is a great lawyer. We've worked with him uh, for many years at this point. And on this episode, we talk about things like a second will and why it could be very useful in avoiding probate tax. If you're building a portfolio of real estate, you might want to look into getting a second will. He describes that on this episode. We also talk about things like all legal stuff like title insurance and why real estate investors should, we all actually as all property owners should be aware of title insurance and why it's created and what it does. Joint ventures, how to protect yourself in joint ventures. This is a very overlooked and misunderstood area of real estate investing. Zoning and the different zoning bylaws and how that's all handled and what we need to look up for zoning and that kind of thing and different clauses in the agreements and how to protect yourself on closing when you're buying and you expect the seller to do some stuff before closing and a whole bunch of other legal matters that sometimes um, you might not want to pay attention to but they are really, really important. So really thankful for Jerry to come on to this episode. Just a good guy, loves talking about his stuff. And and uh, I didn't realize there's a difference between lawyers. You know, there's some excellent lawyers out there, but some specialize in different areas of the law. So when we really started getting into real estate, we realized how valuable it was to get a lawyer who understood real estate law and did a lot of real estate closing. So just grateful to have crossed paths with Jerry. Um, he'll share his contact information on this episode at the end as well. And if you are thinking about getting into real estate yourself, the whole reason that we're starting this podcast, we interview people like Jerry, is because we know the value of your real estate portfolio is not always tied to the properties themselves. Part of the value is tied to the network of people you have around you. That's how you get phone calls for unexpected opportunities that might pop out of nowhere. It's why uh, it's how you can make the right call to someone when you have a problem in a property and you know that you can get the answer really quickly to put yourself at ease. The network of people around you is really, really valuable and important. So if you're not actively developing your relationships, you're completely missing out on an important segment of your real estate portfolio. So uh, that's why we developed... Uh, the, uh, that's why we do this podcast. That's why we developed the Rockstar Inner Circle. And that's a membership that we run. You can find more about the Rockstar Inner Circle at, magically enough, rockstarinnercircle.com. So at rockstarinnercircle.com, um, you can find out more about that membership. It's a great group of people. Once a month, we do a training class, an introductory training class. You can sign up off that website at rockstarinnercircle.com to come out and meet us. Um, we share in 90 minutes a jam-packed um, training session full of different information and full of examples of different properties that we're investing with or helping people invest with here in Ontario right now. So you'll see, you'll see real life data. Did I just say seal? I've either had too much coffee or not enough coffee, but anyway, um, that's it. Let's get on with the episode. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. 
It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. We are live with Jerry Gatto. Jerry, your first full, the, your full name, the first name. Hold what? on, don't wait, Jerry. And you told me this a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's, is it? No, it's not Gerardo. Gennaro. Gennaro. Gennaro Gatto. And in in Italian, that's the saint of miracles. Oh, Saint Gennaro. Okay, everybody, hold on to your seats here. We have a lawyer on the podcast. Jerry, this is your first time on the podcast. We have a lawyer who's the saint of miracles. So uh, I I can't even believe we got a lawyer to be on the podcast here. Absolutely. We try to, Nick and I, I'm I'm only partially joking. We try to keep lawyers at bay. You know what I mean? You don't want to have too many lawyers around, but we're, we're honored for you to be doing this. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. We're, let's jump right into it. The second, uh, I want everyone to understand. Um, by the way, everyone listening to this, you should know, I've known Jerry, uh, I don't know, I guess it's probably at least 10 years. So if I make a joke at Jerry's expense and he makes a joke back at my expense, it's because we're friends. So you, you just understand that if you're on this episode. But Jerry, can you talk to everyone? You said something and you shared this with rocks, some Rockstar members, a, a smaller group of Rockstar members a while ago. And we thought this topic was so important. We wanted to share it with other people at Rockstar and now on the podcast to anyone who would be listening to this. This whole idea of like probate and a way to use a second will to, I guess, efficiently manage probate taxes and that kind of stuff. Can you explain that whole setup? Absolutely. There's there's a method of, uh, if you own a corporation, a privately held corporation, and you have five or six properties or, or more in that corporation, what you can do is you can have two wills. One is a probate will, one is a non-probate will, and we call it a secondary will. So my principal residence, RSPs, things of that nature that I would own personally, I would do a probate will. Upon my death, my lawyer would probate my will. He would get what's called a certificate of appointment, would take that to the court. The court would issue a certificate, which would allow my executor to sell my, my house, cash in my RSPs, uh, go to the bank and bring in all my money, and then the money would be distributed based on my will, the instructions that I have in the will. You pay a probate fee to the court based on the value of your estate. It's typically, to simplify it, it's 1.5% of the value of my estate. So I have a million-dollar estate. I'm I'm paying a $15,000 probate tax to the Minister of Finance. When the money gets to the to my beneficiaries, they don't pay any any tax on that money because it's already been taxed uh, upon my death. If I own property through a corporation, and I know a lot, a lot of Rockstar members are incorporating and we're trying to put properties into the corporate um, name, I can do a secondary will, and that secondary will avoids the probate fee. So if I have $2 million worth of properties in my corporation, I'm saving my family over $30,000 in probate fees because you can transfer the shares in the corporation to your beneficiaries without a court order. And that's what the secondary will does in a nutshell. 
this is allowed to have the, like for some reason I feel like you can't you're not supposed to have a secondary will but you obviously can have a second will absolutely it was in fact it was challenged a year or so ago it was actually challenged in court and the Ontario courts upheld the validity of a secondary will and you can bypass uh, probate on certain assets. You can't do it on your principal residence because when you, when the executor goes to transfer the title, the registry office will not allow you to transfer it without a certificate of appointment. And the only way you can get that certificate of appointment is by applying to the courts. But shares can be transferred pursuant to a secondary will without having a certificate of appointment obtained from the courts. Hmm. So it's getting that certificate of appointment that triggers this probate tax. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you get around it with a secondary will. Got it. Okay. I hadn't, yeah, I don't know. Is this done a lot? Yeah. It, it's becoming more and more popular as, as privately held corporations are becoming more popular and, you know, it's be, being used as an investment vehicle by, by individuals in Ontario. It's becoming more and more popular. It, again, it, it can save you, do you know, fifteen, thirty, forty thousand dollars, yeah, depending it on. It's a, it's a big savings for the for for the family. You obviously don't see the savings. You're no longer here, but your kids see the savings, which is substantial, and you work hard to to make thirty or forty thousand. dollars It's funny you say that you don't see the savings. You don't. Lo- you're no longer here. It's it's. I guess over the last. I don't know, for whatever reason, six months, a year, just a lot of friends talking to me about how short life is and how we all freak out every day about stuff. But in the grand scheme of things, how we all just turn to dust and it's all over. Absolutely. And <laughs> so it's just funny that you're saying this too. I'm like, what is the universe telling me something here? Because all around me, people are saying how short life is and just enjoy it and don't don't have any stress. Well, I'm shocked in, in meeting with clients. I'm still shocked at how many people do not have wills. Do not have power of attorney. And I usually say to individuals, especially husband and wife, typically a husband and wife, if one of the spouses passes away, you probably don't need a will. Everything's held jointly, joint bank accounts, title on the property is you own it as a joint tenant. So, you know, things pass by right of survivorship in that situation. What's actually really important for a married couple is power of attorney because if if I if I have a stroke, I have a, I'm in a car accident and I'm unable to make decisions, my spouse can't do anything with our property. I just feel if I go to the bank with a power of attorney, I'm going to deal with somebody at the bank who looks at it and says, oh, I don't really know what to do with this and I'm going to have to get some approval. So like, can you really go, if I had to deal with something and go to the bank with a power of attorney on my brother, Nick, or, or you know, my wife or whatever, and the banks will understand that I have signing authority uh, here. This is, yes. and if they don't, what you call your lawyer and say, hey, look, man, explain. Yeah, it's a valid. It's, it's a, a valid val- document. Just stand alone as it is. I don't need any other, I don't know. No, doc- no, you can, I mean, I've had clients, now you can be specific with a power of attorney. I've, I've had a couple situations where, for example, I, I'm I'm going to Europe for, for work. Got it. I okay. Have a, I have a client of mine who, who has a contract um, in Dubai and he recently left and he was leaving for six months. He left the power of attorney for his brother. He was selling one of his homes and the power of attorney only dealt with that particular property. So the brother couldn't go in and 
cash GICs or cash stocks a but month. But if the power of attorney is just this document, do they have to call the lawyer who created it? Because can't anyone just make a document that looks like a power of attorney document and have it signed and then show up at the bank and say, I have, I have power of attorney on this person? Well, if it's, well, first of all. Is that, the, is that wrong to even talk about? But this well, is where my I, mind I, goes. It, I'm it, like, well, I don't know. Can't someone just make and, one? And the problem is it does, power of attorneys do raise a lot of red flags. And with a lot of the fraud that's going on in Ontario, power of attorney is one of the ways okay, that it is. Okay, individuals, it. you don't commit the frauds. So what happens typically is you, you, to make a valid power of attorney, you need two witnesses. You, you need an affidavit saying that the witnesses saw it. You need a third party to, to okay, swear so that Okay, so then affidavit. the bank could request maybe to talk to one of these witnesses or Absolutely. whatever. Yeah, and yeah. Typically, typically it depends who the bank is. But I've had calls from a bank saying, hey, Jerry, did you know were you involved in preparing this? Because your name's on the power of attorney as, you know, as a witness and as a lawyer that prepared it. Um, have, have you been involved in that? And obviously, yes. And we're very, we're, we try to be very diligent with the power of attorney in the sense that um, if, if you're doing, if you and your wife are doing power of attorney to each other and you're having an alternate, for example, you and your, you and your wife do a power of attorney and some, something says if we're both in a car accident and we're both unable to make decisions, I name my brother Nick to be the to be the alternate what we typically do is we'll, we'll have a document that says hey jerry if my brother nick comes asking for the power of attorney please use your due diligence to ensure that something's actually happened to us so nick why why are you looking for you know carol and, and tom's power of attorney well they were in a bad car accident as your lawyer I'd ask Nick for some details. I'd perhaps reach out to the hospital, find out what's going on. You know, they're on vacation, try and reach you. So almost as a safeguard, because a power of attorney is a pretty powerful document. I mean, at the end of the day, if I have your power of attorney, I could I could wipe you out in one false swoop. Okay, so we're going to sign one for uh, me over Nick right at the end of this podcast. Exactly, exactly. I've already <laughs> so got it ready. Reason. I've got okay, it good. We'll pull that out. We'll sign it. I'll just tell Nick to sign something. Um, okay. Well, and he then, trusts you. You're, you're his brother. Don't you're trust good. Me. I'm the older brother. Of course, he trusts everything I say. He knows I'm always right. I, so Nick's not on the podcast. So if anyone sees him, just say, hey, I, Tom's always right, isn't he? Um, on the will thing, if you make one will... And then this happens to me a lot where I meet people who are like, I made a will, I don't know, five years ago. I think I have it somewhere. I'm going to make another will. Is it just the latest will is the will? Is that how wills work? Yes. The the, the wills work uh, usually, not always, and I'll explain the difference in a second, but typically you come in and say, hey, Jerry, I want to change my will. My, my kids are now old enough that they can be the executors of my estate. You know, at the time that I did my will, my kids were eight and five, and now they're, you know, 24 and 25, and I want to name them the executors, our will says, I revoke any prior will. So anything that was done prior to the m most recent will is invalid. The only difference, obviously, is if you do have a secondary will, we address that in your will. If you have a will in the States or you have a will in another jurisdiction, you have a will in Quebec, you own property in Quebec or something, we always make sure that our will doesn't revoke those because obviously that would be counterproductive. So any wills that are made in Ontario are revoked. Any previous wills, the most recent will is the valid will. Yeah, got it. Okay. Okay. And then, um, okay, I just want to switch gears a, a little bit now to something else kind of real estate related. Something we see a lot is people will 
sell a property, they'll forget there is rental equipment in the, I don't know if you see this or not. So this might be a very easy question for you. Someone sells a property. They forget to put on the listing that there's like a rental hot water heater in the property. And then there's this big show from the company they're renting the property. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the person who bought the property doesn't want this rental contract. The people who sold the house um, are getting calls then from the company that originally was renting them the hot water tank saying you're responsible. Is There's no other way to deal with this other than honoring the contract and paying a penalty to break out of it, correct? Correct. The only, obviously, if, if you're... If you're the seller and you know that you have a hot water tank, a rental, a furnace with people. That, yeah, people forget. Know, for, I don't furnace, know. The, furnace, the real estate agent forgets. Somebody, the, for, everybody forgets or they forget it, to tell the it, real estate it, person. It, it, I can't tell you. I don't know if you see this a lot. I hear about it quite a lot. I, I've been involved in a couple situations, not, not um, agents that I work with, but I've acted for purchasers where... The agent, you know, the seller they, says, I told my agent that I had okay. a furnace, that I had a hot water tank, and I had an air conditioner, or I had a water Because it's not the buyer's fault, really. It, they didn't absolutely know. Absolutely not. If it, And that's where the clause in the agreement where it talks about, you know, exclusions. The exclusion, you would, you would put an exclusion being the hot water tank is a rental. So if that's assumable, it must be assumed. If the, if the air conditioner is on a... Um, rent to own situation mm -hmm. it's assumable the problem becomes sometimes with items such as air conditioners and furnaces is typically those those the company that has financed that purchase they'll put a lien on the property so now the problem becomes as the purchaser if you're assuming those those must be postponed because your bank wants to be in first position Got it. So, so it you can assume it. You can assume it. Yeah, okay. You can assume it, but you you must get the, that institution to postpone their interest to your first mortgage, and it's we it's doable. We do it all the time, but that becomes a little bit more of a you know cumbersome process for everybody. I swear I've seen it where they've closed on the property, closed, closed, and a month later this all comes up. Wouldn't that mean that the people, the, the whoever has the hot water, whoever the, the company is that owns the hot water tank, if it, it, if it was a rental, they didn't remove their lien? Well, typically hot water tanks, they will not register a lien. Usually the companies, the only companies that register liens are uh, for furnaces and air conditioning. Oh, got it. Okay, so that's how that's happening. And okay. I've had situations where um, the lender or the, the the financer of the hot water of the furnace or air conditioner forgets to register their security interest so you close a transaction and as the lawyer for the purchaser you've done your purchase there's no liens on the property there's no discussion that the furnace or the or the um, air conditioner is is rented or rent to own and yeah we've we've had a few problems because the company forgets to register their security agreement. Or we've also had problems where a tenant authorizes the new furnace. Yeah, no, you're right. We've seen that. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah and yeah. the new air conditioner. And all of a sudden the owner goes to buy it. The owner doesn't even know about it. Now you're closing the deal and you're going, hey, Mr. Seller, were you aware that the air conditioner... So what happens in that situation? Well, I, the few that I've had, I mean, I've had arguments with, with the... Um, with the financer saying 
you you, you, you authorize the tenant to do this. The, the, the tenant is not the owner of the property. You you as the the company putting in the air conditioning, putting in the um, furnace, you've got an obligation to ensure that the person who's authorizing you to put those that equipment in is the right totally. owner of the property, yeah. right? Now they don't, you know, sometimes you get a salesman who's overly zealous and he goes in and, hey, Tom, you want perfect, I'll put it in. You know, I've just got my commission. The problem is, and what I've typically tried to do is negotiate a, a resolution. The reason is that at the end of the day, there is there is the idea that I own the property, I do have a new furnace in, I do have a new the air conditioning. The landlord loses again. Jerry, I, this is where you're telling me the landlord, the owner well, of the property I, loses again? The problem is, is that... I get it. I get know, it. I get it. I get it. I don't want to get it, but I think I get it. Yeah, it's just that the, the, the courts are going to look... Because when say, you go to the court, the court's going to say that you have the benefit of the new furnace. Absolutely. So... Even though, that, even though it was a mistake, yeah, you're you still have the benefiting benefit. from There's it. There's no loss. You have no loss in this situation mm-hmm. to come after anybody. You actually have a benefit. Correct, and that's what sometimes we've... the law is so. What bothers me about the law, and I don't know how you got you, you as a lawyer how you think about it, but sometimes I think the law has no common sense. Well, and that's what sometimes bothers me about the law. Like it's, and and I don't know how lawyers talk about it, but I feel like sometimes, and I'm not arguing on this specific point. I just mean in general. Sometimes it, everything in the legal world is so black and white. But if you just have some common sense, you realize like, okay, this this really shouldn't be this way. Do it, you find that with the? Is that on purpose? Well, like, I, I think that I, the problem is this, and this is what I always tell my clients. The judge that's sitting up on the bench, he's human like you and I. He's got his, you know, his, his, his rights and his wrongs and his, you know, set ways. And if he sees you and he says, ah, Tom, you're a fat cat. You own 10 properties. I'm going to try and help this poor little guy. We do have, in our law, we have law and we have equity. So a judge does have the right to say, you know what, Tom, I think it's only fair that you compensate this person, even though the law may not necessarily be on your side. Jeez. And, and it's diff- And I always say to clients, I always have to be careful because if I'm walking into court and that judge looks at my client and doesn't like him, doesn't like him or, her. or doesn't believe him, you have a problem because lots of times... You're saying it's white, the other person's saying it's mm. black, and the judge that's sitting up there has to believe one of the two. Because there's this concept of equity, meaning yes. what is, what's, what's fair? What's, what's fair? fair? What's oh, fair? Yeah, you yeah. know, like Equitable. and sometimes yeah, the law may not have a fair result, and the judge has it's an old English yeah, common got law it. Thing, yeah, you know? yeah, got it. But you know, a judge does okay, have so, some discretion. So I kinda like disagree and I agree because if there is that then you know there is couldn't be some common sense perhaps being used in, in the legal system. And that's what you hope. And that's what you hope. Okay, so the next thing I wanted to talk to you about was I always get confused on this and I think you've straightened me out over the years one million times, but I gotta ask you again. Title. When is the what ha- title insurance like, what's the benefit of this title insurance thing? Why does it even exist? You know, because back in the day, I, I, and the reason I ask is because I know other systems, right? I've seen other lawyers in other countries pour through old documents and look at, I guess they were called deeds. Um, what's the deal with title insurance? Well, title insurance basically became popular around 2000. And so it's been around for about 20 years now. So people that own properties prior to 2000 probably don't have title insurance title insurance 
protects you against three specific things. So in my practice, when I purchase a property for someone, I go back, I do a full 40-year search, and we go back and we see if there's any issues with the Planning Act, we see if there's any issues with the, the registry system, because when, when everything was changed to the present system, the government hired a ton of title searchers, and they all went through and looked at documents and decided if things were right or wrong. Well, unfortunately, I don't know who searched that title, so I get my own person to search a title and just to make sure it's good. Title insurance protects you against three specific things. Number one, it protects you. It protects you on closing. The vendor is calling the utilities. Utilities comes in, does their final meter reading. I, as the new purchaser, take over from the closing date forward. You're moving to California. You go, ma, to heck with it. No one's going to track me down in California. I'm not paying my final bill. You, as the new purchaser, get a phone call from utilities, from the sewer department, from the city, saying, hey, Tom, there's, there's an outstanding uh, water bill here for $400 that the previous owner didn't pay. We're going to put a lien on your property. You call me, contact title insurance company. They pay it. They worry about tracking the individual down. That's the first thing. Second thing is, if, there's, if the previous owner has done work on the property, which he didn't obtain proper approval from the municipality. So he's added a room, he's added, converted something from a one bedroom to a two bedroom, but didn't get proper permits. And now somebody from the municipality comes in and says, hey, there's an issue here. You know, work was done without proper permits and they slap a work order against the property. Again, we call title insurance company. They determine what needs to be done they fix it. They hire the architects. They hire the engineers. They do it. We have one right now where... Okay, that's that's pretty valuable. I mean, the first point is very valuable too, but the second no, one could be huge. Very, very good. Yeah, yeah. And then thirdly, it protects against identity theft. Five years down the road, somebody slaps a lien on your property, puts a mortgage, sells it without your knowledge. You're, you're in Croatia having a nice vacation and you come home and all of a sudden some, another family's living in your home and you go, excuse me, title insurance... We'll get that title back for you. That's their job. No cost to you. Okay, whatsoever. so then the downside of title insurance is that it sounds like your office is doing it, but no one's checking to make sure the property is exactly the way it should be. And what I mean by that, didn't you have a story you told me six months ago or something about like a laneway on a house from like 18, I don't know, 100 years ago or, or, or something so that shouldn't have been part of this property, but, but people who bought the property thought they also got the driveway or laneway. And because of title insurance, no one checks this stuff anymore. And that's the problem. And that's why I say when you're hiring a lawyer, the first question you should be asking if you're a purchaser, are you doing a full 40-year search? Because some lawyers are just depending on the title insurance and saying, screw it. Unfortunately, there's lawyers out there that simply rely on the... But is that so bad? Because if there is a problem, don't they just lean on the title insurance to fix it? But it, they do lean on the title insurance company. The problem is this. And this is the analogy I give to all my clients. I know that in that mall down the street here, they steal a lot of cards. You know what? I'm going to try to avoid it because it's a pain in the butt if I have to make a claim. I'd rather not have to make a claim. I'd rather my lawyer do what he's supposed to do. That way I avoid going through title insurance. Obviously, down the road, somebody steals my, my title and I have to do it. I do it. But if I can avoid, if I can have my clients avoid making a claim, 
it's less time out of it because nobody's compensating you for your time. If you spend six or seven hours trying to get this claim in and done, you're going to be compensated. Okay, yeah, but yeah, so paying. it's cleaner. Right. Like yeah. I, I do tax certificates. I always order a tax certificate. I know there's lots of lawyers that don't order tax certificates because, again, if the taxes are not paid in accordance to the statement of adjustments, title insurance covers you. I pay the 60 or $70 that the municipality charges me for a tax certificate so I can say, Tom, it's been paid, don't worry about it. As opposed to, well, it might be paid, maybe it's not, we'll find out down the road and if we don't, you can put a claim into title insurance company. I prefer to avoid it. I try to be proactive and avoid issues yeah, if no, we can. I, I see. Okay, it's cleaner. What happened in that situation? Do you remember the story I'm talking about? This am, driveway? What I'm happened? Because they thought the laneway or driveway belonged to the, uh, the, the property, no? They, the clients, my clients purchased the property. Actually, my clients were acting for the, I acted for the seller, not the buyer. Okay. okay? And it turns out that the driveway was not included in the property that my clients owned. I did not act for them when they purchased it. And you the, found this out by going back. Yeah, in fact, I, I, if I remember correctly, the individual that owned it was a gentleman by the name of Mr. Hobbs, and he owned it since 1897. It was a strip of property. It was a standalone little piece of property. And we were able to go through title insurance and, and they resolved it. And I mean, obviously the, the estate of Mr. Hobbs is, you know, has been uh, gone many, many years ago. And there's a thing called adverse possession and squatters rates that used to be in existence prior to 1996. Now it's, it's now been abolished. There's no more squatters rights or, or things like that. But there's no more squatters rights in Canada. <laughs> I always thought that was the coolest thing. Cause couldn't you find a piece of land that wasn't it seven years or something? 10 years, 10 years that no one used. And then you could just claim it as yeah, your own. You could claim it. You could claim <laughs> that's it. All it that's all gone. That's all gone. Not that I was ever going to do it. I just liked that whole idea. Like, <laughs> Hey man, there's a piece of property over there. I'm just going to claim that as my own. Yeah. That's, that's all been gone. Actually. It's, it, it's, uh, it was abolished in, I think 1996, 1997. Yeah, okay. That that's gone. But, um, with this particular property, it went many years without anybody doing any searches and property was just moved to and everybody that purchased it just assumed that I own the house and the driveway. Okay, and so the downside in that situation is some, if, if I don't know, some of Mr. Hobbs relatives could make a claim on that really, I guess, if they wanted to, correct? Yes, could they okay. could make a claim, number one. But number two, which is even more concerning, is if I own the title and I'm sued and I'm somebody puts a lien against my name, that lien will attach to that piece of property. So it's not just mm. simply that, yeah, yeah, got you know, it. it's simple say, okay, you know, there, it's an oversight, it's a mistake. The problem is that if, if you've got a creditor now going, wait a minute, I've got an interest in that property because I've got a lien against Mr. Hobbs and he owes me, you know, $40,000 because, you know, he, he did, you know, yeah, yeah, he, got it. he but you're thinking work that's he, your property and you get sucked into this whole thing. Exactly. And that's the problem okay. with that. Okay. So I want to keep going here because I know I have a bunch of questions for you. Legal non, okay. This one comes up a lot. What is a legal non-conforming unit or property in you? How do you explain it to people okay. versus legal conforming? All right. So I buy a property that's a duplex. Classic. Yeah. This is the most well, common example. Most common. This, Everywhere uh, across the GTA. The, the, this is the example. Okay? Yeah, this yeah. is the example. So I own a property that's a duplex. I go to the city of, of Hamilton and I do what's called a zoning verification certificate. 
Hamilton, I think they charge you $250, $300 to get a zoning verification. I say, listen, I'm buying 123 Main Street. I want to make sure it's a duplex. They write me back and say, yes, it's zoned to be a duplex. I purchase it. I decide I no longer want to use it as a duplex. I convert it to a single family residential. My family uses it. Someday down the road, I sell it and I advertise it as potential duplex. So you as a purchaser come along and say, great, it's not being used as a duplex now, but it's zoned as a duplex. I can convert it back as a duplex. That's a legal duplex. Bylaws been passed, allowing for it to be used as a duplex. A legal non-conforming duplex is, again, it's used as a duplex, been used as a duplex since 1950. Continuously used as a duplex. I purchase it. I check with the city of Hamilton. They say it's a legal non-conforming duplex, which means the property was used as a duplex prior to the enactment of the bylaw. So they've grandfathered the use in. However, if I purchase that property, I then change the use from a duplex to a single family residential home. It's now lost its designation as a legal non-conforming duplex. If I sell the property tomorrow, I can no longer advertise it as a duplex. So I continue to use it as a duplex. It can remain as a duplex for the next hundred years. Once I stop using it as a duplex, it loses its um, designation status. Yeah, status yeah, okay. designation. And it's the city that would know that about that property. I feel like you be, called well, someone at the city, and they well, be because like, the bylaw, the I mean, we have bylaws and and certain areas where you can check and say, okay, this is in this area, uh, duplexes are allowed, and you know, yeah, triplexes. Okay, okay are so allowed. then I buy that property and I turn it back into a duplex, and I rent out the top and the bottom. That means a bylaw officer can come to me and say, hey, you gotta you gotta shut this down. But or the, the, or the, prove to me, or prove that to it's me legal conforming. That's now. right. That it's been used continuously. Okay. Or that it's legal non-conforming and, and it's been used continuously. Yes. And that's okay. a problem. Sometimes you know a client will purchase that, and we'll get from we'll get a zoning verification from the city of uh, Hamilton or whatever. I use Hamilton because that's where I'm from. But we get a zoning verification certificate that says, oh yeah, it's illegal non-conforming as long as you can prove that it's been continuously used as a triplex or a duplex. Since prior to the enactment of the bylaw, which was in 1960. You could probably prove it for like maybe 10 years well, if you're good. Well, that's a problem. That's yeah, a problem. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's sometimes you're, you're saying to the client, listen, it's, it's a legal non-conforming mm-hmm. uh, duplex or triplex, but you could have some problems when you sell it. So, it's, it's good that it's legal non-conforming. Wait, why would you have problems when you sell it though? Well, because it's legal non-conforming. Well, because oh, you can't prove you can't that it's been non-conforming, it's been, it's legal mon- non-conforming for 50 years or That's something. That's correct. Because you, 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 you have to try to find out when the bylaw changed and it could be 50 years ago. Yes, and and technically the only way you could do it is going back and finding declarations of possession. So that's one of the things that you don't mm-hmm. clients sign when they sell, they sign a declaration of possession. And if you know what you're doing, you're, if it's a legal non-conforming, you say, listen, this property's been used prior to, to me as a duplex for so long, and that's what I purchased it as. So, I mean, okay, and it's then if you can't prove complex. it, you have to. This is where it always gets tricky, and, um, you know, you have two tenants in there. The bylaw officer can say, well, you got to shut this thing down. But this is weird because then you're obligated to, by the tenant board in Ontario 
to, I think you have to go through the tenant board. I forget which forms that you have to fill out, but we're gonna have to fill out the proper forms to notify the tenants in there that they have to vacate because it's a, it's not uh, the bylaw officer shutting this down because it's a, what is it? It's a not legal non-conforming, I guess Correct. now. That's a right? problem. And so, that, so this is just a big hassle. It, it's a huge hassle. It's a huge Cause hassle. Cause I'm not even sure I've done this. Uh, I've been through this a few times and I can't even remember the rights on this, but I, you basically have to serve the tenant with forget which form, go to the tenant board. Cause, uh, and I don't even know your responsibility to the tenants in there. Well, that it, 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 it becomes an issue with the tenant. You may have to compensate them to have them vacate the property. As decided by the tenant board, I assume. Well, yes, because it, the problem is you got the city. Yeah, the city's telling me one thing, but the tenant act, the, I'm governed by the tenant act and the tenant board on the, my the relationship. The residential with, tenancy yeah. act doesn't allow you to, to vacate just tell them somebody. To leave. Because it but, doesn't comply with the bylaws. So does the bylaw officer tell you what to do? Do you know? No, the bylaw says he Get, issues you fix a stop work order and says it's the messiest problem to oh, have. It, it, it's a terrible problem. It's a terrible, terrible problem, and it's a costly problem to have, and and it does hurt the value of the property. Yeah, and I know multiple situations where what happens is, uh, so this is for any investor, you need to understand this, that if you do get into a situation where you have a non-legal, non-conforming duplex and one of your tenants doesn't want, wants to give you a hard time, they can call the city on you and make your life completely miserable because they can report. And I've seen this multiple, I don't know, I'm sure you've seen this kind of thing. I've seen this multiple times. I hate even talking about this. I don't want anyone to know that that's done, but that is done. And I think if you're an investor, you should be aware. And that's the scary. And that's, an, you know, I always say to clients, unfortunately and there's lots you can of, get through it just i know we're talking about like a scary but i've seen multiple people get through it and you, you can, you can you, get through it absolutely and and there's lots of units in many municipalities oh yeah, that are that are illegal units with you know with a in-law suite in the basement you know something like that at one but, point in mississauga and i grew up in mississauga, mississauga and brampton i feel like half of them were all run in i forget at one point I think at one point Brampton had some bylaws where you couldn't have a second kitchen or a hot plate or something in the basement or any kind of second unit. I think that's that's now changed. Yeah. Um, but there are social services I think were getting crushed and they kind of put this bylaw into place. I knew so many people operating, I guess, what would be called non-legal, non-conforming yes. duplexes yeah. there. And there's and, and there's municipalities like London, Ontario now that's doing licensing for and and I know Rockstar. You sure, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. all all across, and that's the place. I'm pretty sure that's the places to grow act, which is mandated that all municipalities have to come up with some legal duplex or legal second suite options, and they document it as long as you have this much parking and exactly. this much stuff, and and do it. You're right. Um, okay, yeah, that that's not one of my favorite ones. Okay, the next one I wanted to talk to you about was um, a vendor who. So I buy a property. The seller said they were going to fix the roof, but you know I noticed the day before closing, roof's not fixed. What's the best way when I'm buying properties to protect myself in that kind of situation? I don't know if it's going to be clauses or talking to my lawyer. What's the best way to do well, that? Uh, I've, I've talked to a lot of real estate agents and the, the law does not. So if, if, if I agree as a seller to, to make repairs to the property, I'm going to change some doors and change the roof, you know, maybe uh, change some, some windows, whatever I, I agree to do. Unfortunately, if the vendor does not do, do, do the work prior to closing, the law is really clear that as the purchaser, I'm not entitled to refuse to close the transaction. I'm not entitled to a holdback. I must close and then get the work done and subsequently sue the seller in small claims court for breach contract. Say, hey, you agreed to do this. You didn't do it. We close the deal. So what I, what I recommend to, to the agents that I work with is 
to put a clause in there to specify the work that has to be done. Put an estimated value on the work. Realistic. I mean, so if it's it, a roof, you can say five thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars. I put it a little bit higher than, than okay. Than I'm, okay. And what I normally do is I put a clause in there that says, if the work's not completed five days prior to closing, then the purchaser is entitled to hold back X, whether that be five thousand, ten thousand, and if the work's not done within fourteen days of closing, then the seller forfeits that amount. Okay, so by having that language in the agreement of purchase and sale, it gives me a bit more flexibility. Absolutely. Now, if the work's not done, and the five days is important because I, I once had a, had, a, had a situation where it said prior to closing, the lawyer on the other side's going, well, my guy's there doing it right now. And I'm going, well, but, but our deal's closing in the next hour. How am I going to know it's done? You have to take my word for it. And that's why I always say five days prior to closing, if the work's Sorry, Jerry. I know well, they're, they're working we're, yeah, right now. Yeah, we're, we're still under construction yeah. site. More furniture is arriving at our new offices here. And poor Jerry, I told him you're going to work through a construction site. So here we are. And we have a clause for a holdback if it's not completed properly. Yeah, yeah, properly. totally. Yeah, yeah. I'm watching the furniture guys right now. <laughs> so, but that's that's important to do because, you know, lots of times the clients come in and say, but, but he didn't do what he said he was supposed to. And, if, and you have to say, but you must still close the transaction. So that clause gives you some some strength in in allowing your your lawyer to hold back some money, and it's a little perk because if I'm the seller, and I know that the work's going to be three thousand, but this guy gets a hold back five thousand, I'm typically going to try and get the work done. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's a big one. Mm -hmm. I, that's a really important clause that's completely missed a, a lot. Uh, is there another clause that comes to mind that's missed a lot that you for you? Well, I'm putting we, you on the spot, so it well, doesn't. We, we, we um. The clause about the making sure that all the chattels and fixtures are in good working order on the day of closing. That's a big clause as well. And you think that's missed a lot? Um, yeah, you'd be surprised. You'd okay. be surprised. I, okay. I, I closed lots of transactions okay. where that, that isn't put in. And and unfortunately, when, when you miss that clause, the the oven's not working on closing and it's been and it hasn't worked in the last six mm. weeks no recourse as, as the purchaser you have no recourse but even if you missed it and that clause is there as a purchaser i get to say to the guy hey you gave me a warranty that it would be in good working order on closing and and how would i prove that just on the day of closing i could take a little video right. pictures if something's broken okay absolutely and that's the other thing i i, I also I ask, I say to clients that when they purchase, and I, I've seen some crazy things where people switch out dishwashers. Yeah, totally. So we show one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my get god! Get the serial numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take, get a picture the, take pictures. Take pictures. I mean, it's crazy. Some of the things that <laughs> totally. you see. Yeah, yeah. But as a purchaser, if I'm buying five appliances and they're all brand new appliances, now all of a sudden a deal closes. They're not there, and. I'm trying to prove, to, you know, we're trying to bring back pictures of the how, the way the house looked. I say to clients, take pictures, take take serial numbers, take to make a, a make a model of what you're buying, and that way, if if we do have an issue on closing, at least they've got some evidence to go to a, to court and say, look, these are the items that were there, these are the items that are here now, and they're completely different items. How long does it take? Uh, so this is a, a kind of a basic question, but just in general, how long does a, a legal office like yours need to close a deal? Is well, it like two? Do you need like we, if it's a rush deal, you need still two we, weeks? We need right? a couple of weeks. We need a couple of weeks because it, you know by the time we get our search done, by the time we we get all that, we get the instructions from the mortgage company. Typically, I mean, obviously, we we in an ideal world, we'd love 
we'd love 30 days love 30 to 45 days in an ideal world. But if we have a couple of weeks, we're, we're, we're usually good. The requisition date, and again, in speaking to a lot of the, the Rockstar agents, I emphasize the requisition date on the offer is important because the, the longer time I have to do our searches, the better, the better I can serve you. We have sometimes- So longer time, you mean the date closest to the closing date? Yes, yes, the requisition date. Make the requisition date in the offer, I, the way I was say, taught at the beginning, I think it was always like two weeks before closing or something. Well, but that's wrong. That's wrong. If if you're acting, if I'm acting for the seller, the two weeks is what I want. If I'm acting for the purchaser, I always try and put the requisition date as close as possible to the closing. Because then, date. if somebody puts a lien on the property, I can still. Well, is that what I'm doing? Well, there's certain things that I mean, liens be, go to the root of titles. I mean, I'm not obligated okay. to, to close. But if there's if there's easements, you know, rights and ways that I'm not aware of that put a cloud to the to the title, that's what the requisition date is for. That allows me as the, as the lawyer for the purchaser to investigate the title and have the seller fix it. So, but if I miss that requisition date, I might be out of luck and I might have to say, sorry, we missed the requisition date because I didn't get the offer till after the requisition date. And now you, Mr. Purchaser, are stuck with this little cloud on title and it's gonna cost you more money for me to fix it down the road. I want to ask you a question about joint ventures. When Nick and I have done a bunch of joint ventures over the years, and we've always uh, made ourselves have a, a voting majority on repairs on a property. So for example, if we're going to buy a joint venture uh, with somebody, single family home, we want to know that if the, uh, if the basement floods with water or the roof needs repair, we want to fix that problem. So Nick and I will always make sure we have like voting control in the relationship so that yes. we can say, hey, we're going to fix that roof. We're not going to leave a hole in the roof and let the whole house kind of get destroyed. Um, and we've done that because we've always been worried that uh, someone who might be in a cash crunch or something might say, oh, we can let the roof go for a few months. Um, have you ever seen situations between joint venture relationships that kind of get like out of control like that? Or have we just uh, have a joint venture agreement that we've had for years, Jerry, um, and we have this little voting kind of thing that we have on there that decides who's going to vote under these decisions? Have we been doing that the right way? Yeah, or yeah. yeah, the joint venture agreements that you guys have are, are, are good. I mean, and we sort of tweak individually sure. a little yeah, yeah. bit okay. depending on but that the, voting control thing but you, that voting control thing is very important do, do you I'll, recommend any, cuz i think some people probably leave it 50-50 and i what are your thoughts cuz can you get into an argument with your yeah, joint venture partner I, in that situation absolutely absolutely and the the to me if if you're the guy putting the money in you're the guy that wants to be able to control mm -hmm. it or, or that's why and we've been the one putting the money in and we're not on title or anything so sometimes in some of these things so that was our way to have some control on the situation absolutely but the and joint venture go ahead sorry and the, and the the joint venture agreement it's important to to have some control over repairs what happens if there's a shortfall? What happens if somebody runs out of money? But I there's mean, no good there's issues that, that, that arise. Totally. That yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I thank you for all your help over the years with joint venture. I know a bunch of rock star investors you've helped with and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, uh, but there's no good way, if you're not on title, to really truly protect yourself with a joint venture relationship, is there? Um, there's no really good... You, well, you know we, what I we mean? Typically, we typically try... Um, a, Again, subject to, to the bank and subject yeah, to... Yeah, because they have to... I think I know the direction you're going in, but the bank has to allow... Well, let me let you say uh, it first. The bank has to allow a registration of a caution or mm -hmm. something. And they don't like that. They A lot of banks don't like yeah. that. But if, if, you, if you have the permission of the bank to do it, 
or they're, they're not opposed to it, that's the best protection you can get is, is to have some protection that your name, at least what it does is you, it doesn't prevent if, if the um, owner gets sued has liens against them, that, that's not going to help you as a joint venture owner. I mean, and that's really one of the biggest fears. But what it does prevent is the person to refinance, a person to sell it. If your interest is noted on the title, you're going to have to be notified that he's doing So there's something. no other really good way, right? No, there's no really good yeah. way. It's difficult. It's difficult. Can you check every once in a while and just pull... Uh, Nick and I, when we were getting started in real estate, I think I took some course and I figured I could go... I, I think I paid eight dollars at the land registry office to pull some kind of title search on yeah. properties to see if people were like behind on paying. Yeah. I don't know what I was doing. I don't even know if I was supposed to be doing. It. I was doing it. No, no, but but, but, but can but can that, you can I go do that then absolutely. on the property? I forget what that will tell me. It, it will tell me what's registered against the property or something like that. You can go to the to the registry office. Yeah, I remember okay. going to the it, one in Milton. Yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah, why I was going go, to. Is there one in Milton? On Steels, uh, Steels Avenue. Yeah, Steels and Highway Twenty. Okay, I remember walking in there. I think the I was petrified, paying my eight bucks on yeah. some property. Yeah. And you and years ago we used to pull out the old books. Now you don't have to do that, and because that is public information. Come closer you, to the mic. Sorry, Jerry. Come you down. can always you can always go and and find information about any property you want. You want to find out what your neighbor paid for the property. You can go to the registry oh, office. No, give I them. can't believe you just said yeah, that. that. People are going to go but do you that. Can yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because it is public information. So uh, you pay the money, you can pull, and you will see what the property sold for. Generally, you can see what the property. And you can sold. see what's. Can you see what's registered against Absolutely. the property? The initial balance. So if someone yeah. has a mortgage, you'll see the initial balance, not the current balance. Uh, you're not going to see the current balance, yeah, but okay. you'll see what's what's registered. Okay. So I can see then if I'm in a joint venture relationship, I can go once a month. I'm not saying anyone's going to go once a month or twice a year, or whatever. I can do that to see if anyone's registering things that they shouldn't be. Like for example, because one of my biggest fears would be I get in a joint venture relationship and they take out a line of credit or some home line that I'm not aware of and it's registered against the property. Correct. I want to be able to see that kind of stuff. Th that's exactly what you want to try to prevent. And that's and that's why if, if, if a bank allows you to register a caution... That's the best. It, yeah. That's the best because now something can't be registered without you being notified. Of it. Yeah, but it. yes, if you want it to be... Okay. Really, really proactive. I know no one's going to do that, but you could. Nick yeah, and I are could. anal enough to do that. Um, I want something else then. So let's say we didn't register anything. Somebody sells the property from right under me in a joint venture relationship. Okay, in this joint venture agreement, I should then have some legal recourse. No. Well, you can sue them. I can but, sue but them. The but the problem is they might not have assets. They to may pay not me. have any assets to pay. You, you <clears> wouldn't. You go to court and you say, hey, you know what? Um, Joe over there owes mm -hmm. me. Hundred thousand dollars because he sold the property and we made a two hundred thousand dollar profit and he owes me a hundred of that. Mm -hmm. And Joe goes, huh, "Sorry, I had to pay that to some creditors. I owed I owed Revenue Canada four hundred thousand dollars." But I can stay on Joe's ass then for a while. You until can unless he goes bankrupt. If he files bankruptcy, then your 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 judgment's worthless. Oh my gosh, yeah, because I'm a I, so you're a creditor. I'm a creditor to him. He declares bankruptcy, and because my issue or whatever is dated before this bankruptcy yeah. gets wrapped up in the bankruptcy. Really? You're done. Yeah. You're seen not a Have you seen you're... this kind of stuff? Well, no, fortunately. Well, okay. My mind know, goes to the worst case sometimes. I mean, obviously in a good real estate market, there's less chance of that sure. happening. Yeah. You, the problems start coming in if the market takes a bit of a dip, but if, if, if a pro property that was purchased starts to lose some value and now that's where you get mm -hmm. more problems. I mean, obviously as 
as properties increase in value, and hopefully they'll continue to do that, usually the joint venture agreements are good. Everybody's happy. They're making some money. Nobody's and out. they are, and yeah, I know I'm asking worst case situation. No, no, I just but, like to know the worst case yeah, at all times. Yeah, and that's and that's important to know. And you know, a joint venture agreement. I always say you should know who you're going, who you you're going into joint. You just don't blindly go in with any any Tom, Dick, or Harry. It's why Nick and I haven't done more. We're pretty. Uh, I, you know what? It's not just that. I just don't want to deal. This sounds old. Maybe I'm getting old, Jerry. I just don't want to deal with stuff. Yeah, it, I just it, it's it, like I trust Nick. He trusts me, especially with this power of attorney that you're going to help me sign yeah, yeah. later on. <laughs> but uh, that's it, you know. Um, yeah. But uh, actually, I shouldn't say that. There are a small handful of people in my life that I would totally trust and do stuff with. But outside that, it's like, well, and not that, more. And that is the problem. Just, you know, partnership in anything. The problem is we buy a property together. Our interests change. I've got a son going to university. I've got a daughter getting married and I need some Or you get someone who's new to real estate. They get in. They don't like dealing with these tenant issues that are normal part of real estate. They're like, forget this. I don't want to sink any more money into this. Your property could be going up in value. It might be the best. Jerry, I've seen this. I've seen people make the best investment of their lives with a property, then not want to deal with the very first tenant issue comes up and then just say sell in a joint venture relationship. I'm like, why are you going to sell? Like the other person's even dealing with the problem, but they can't even handle the problem just going on. They're not even the one dealing with it. That's why real estate's not for everyone. And I know I'm preaching to the choir it, it, here. Exactly. And 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 I, you know, I've had clients walk in and say, "That's it. I'm, you know, I'm buying six properties." And you know, and I go, "Slow down. Buy one. Make sure it's for you. Because unless you have a property manager, obviously, who takes care of that. And you know, if you own one or two properties, a lot of people look after them themselves." You're gonna. You might get a phone call two o'clock in the morning to tell me that my furnace, the furnace is out, and I gotta get it fixed. And that's not for everybody. Some people it really bothers, and some people thrive with that. They love it. When you buy a rental property, you are buying yourself a part-time job. It's work. Money doesn't. It's a business. I tell everyone. It's a business. It's a business. And you gotta work it. And you have to work it. And it's not for everybody. No. Some some people personality wise i mean you know you do have a situation where a tenant is going to be a day late than rent the problem with real estate is the 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 problems are never scheduled like if i could say i'm going to have six problems with this property this year and i can put them into my calendar in advance it wouldn't be that big of a deal but usually the six problems come up always at the word the day before vacation or something or exactly and 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 if you don't have if you don't have a good network of people to to help you if you don't have the, the tradespeople, or if you're not handy yourself. The legal people. I the mean, I'm looking people. at you, yeah, yeah for the sure. The legal people, yeah. right? You need you need people yeah. that you can lean on if you have a problem, if you have to be able to, you know, if, if the tenant's not paying rent. And I always say to clients, don't become friends with your tenant. No, I've it, made that it, mistake it, many right? times. You when we were younger, I was like, I, I think I was scared of them. Yeah. I was scared of the tenant, so I became their friend. Yeah, yeah, thinking, hey, will you like me? Here's yeah, all this yeah. stuff we're doing it, for exactly. you. Exactly. And, and if you horrible. don't... It was horrible. Now we tell them, look, this is a business, man. I see you seem like a great person, but here's how it's going to be. Rent's not paid. Here's we're going to be serving the N4. Exactly. End of the story. Bank doesn't really like me, so I have to be like this way to you. That's the way it's going to be. And I find when you when you have that type of agreement, 
face to face with people at the beginning is everything's great. Yes. All the fears that I had before actually kind of, uh, they're just, they vanish. Yes. It's when you're a little bit weak at the beginning. And I shouldn't say weak, but a little too, too friendly. I kind of do mean weak actually. And a little too kind of giving at the beginning, it all backfires on you. It did on me anyway. It I've does. been called a coward by tenants. I've had tenants say nice things to my face. Then I leave then send me nasty emails about stuff. And um, it's all because I was too nice. You know, and, and uh, Nick thankfully straightened me out. And I was like, Tom, you're being too nice. You know, like, well, you got to stop. They're, they're not your friends. I always say to tenants. You're, it's bad. You you're, know what? I just don't like to live in a world that is like that. But you're right. It's totally like that. And, and that's where it's, it's important that, to, to your point you made earlier, you need to set rules down early. Totally. You know what? Yeah, yeah. The rent is due on the first of the month. If I don't have the rent by the end of the first, on the second, I'm serving an N4. And it's funny how I have clients that do that. The tenant misses one or two, but they don't miss a third one because they know if that can continuously happens at some point, at some point, the you're more advanced than me. You're, the, you're wearing an Apple I, watch, watch that Apple watch that rings on my wrist, <laughs> but you're right. No, you're right. To your point on, on this whole thing is just, I used to buy into the stories. So like, and I find most investors do this. Now I don't do this anymore, but I used to buy into the stories where somebody would say, I'm late on rent because X, Y, and Z, right? And I'd say, oh my gosh, okay, you know, I'm busy in life. You're busy in life. You you just pay me in two weeks like you say you're going to pay me. Then I forget about it. A whole month passes. And now I'm into the next month. They haven't paid me on last month and they owe me for this month. And now it's, it's steamrolls. They give me another story. I'm busy in life. I, they go another month. So when most of the bad stories around non-payment of rent and real estate isn't actually the tenant's fault. That's what I tell everyone. It's actually the investor, the owner's fault because they didn't take action when they should have been taking action. So when you see a lot of these problems that get played out in the Toronto star and the media and stuff, a lot of the time it's because the owner of the property didn't do the right thing at the beginning. And the thing spirals out of control. I know not all the time there's the, the whole, you know, the horrible situation, yeah, yeah. but in general, when real estate gets a bad name, it's really because the owner didn't take action. Absolutely. I agree with that a hundred percent. It's, it's the, it's the owner. It, I always, if you look, and if I owe Peter money and I owe Paul money, and Peter's on me about getting paid, and Paul's going, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it, I'm going to pay Peter before I pay Paul. And if if I'm the landlord, I want to be the Peter in the scenario, not the Paul. And once you start straightening that out with the tenant, they understand that if they want to continue living there, they have to pay their bills on time. And that's important to set that early and, and stay with it. And... Mm-hmm. Commit to your word. If you don't pay me on the first, on the second, I will serve you with an N4. But you have to do it. You can't just have a veil threat and I'm going to do it. You have to do it. And you keep doing that. And I think it's a good way to manage your tenants. Jerry, I want to uh, say something. This might be a bit awkward for you. I don't know. But uh, over the years, you've helped a lot of rock star investors. And we want to thank you for that you know the way you handle real estate and handle the closings and a lot of new investors some people own 10 20 25 30 properties but some people it's their very first property and they're freaking out and they should be freaking out and you do such a good job walking everybody through that i just really want to thank you for the way you've helped because 
it doesn't just help us here at Rockstar with investors. I really believe we're making an impact in people's lives that if they can buy a property and hold on to it, one property could change their financial future. And so I just want to thank you for, you know, kind of being part of the team. I know you have your business, we have our business, but so thank you for the way you're, you're, you, you do things. And I want to explain something, and it's going to be awkward with you sitting right here, but I don't care, that most people I found in life are always trying to save 50 bucks. And what I tell everybody is when you find professionals that you want to work with, you want to pay them what they charge. And the reason you want that is because when shit hits the fan in your life, and it will, if you're especially if you're doing stuff, your shit's going to hit the fan. No fault of your own. It's normal. It's normal in business and in real estate. You want to build a network of professionals that like you and the way for them to like you subconsciously is just to pay them their fees. We see a lot of investors who nickel and dime and Jerry, I'm not pointing at you. I mean, accountants and property managers over, over five bucks. Like I've seen, I've seen people freak out over a $5 a month on a property manager bill that they didn't expect to see. And I'm like, you know what, when you have good people, you pay them. And the reason that you do, and I know some people are cringing hearing me this. I don't care. I think this is a success secret. That's not discussed. You want to build a network of people that when your phone rings and they see your name pop up on the phone, that they answer your phone call because it's those times you really need them. And if you've given them a hard time over the years on, you know, on their fees and that stuff, trust me, I know this from experience. They're not going to pick up your phone call. Then you're going to call me saying, why is this person not going to pick up my phone call? And I'll explain to you why. So I'm, I'm just saying that in front of you, Jerry, because I really want to thank you for everything that you've done over the years. You know, it's been a long time. I don't know, countless investors you've worked with from Rockstar and helping them guide them through this path. You're a really good guy. And it's tough for me to say that to a lawyer. Well, <laughs> well I'll tell you, I mean, I've been fortunate to have been associated with you guys and uh, you know we were talking earlier on how sort of that that connection came and it was fantastic and I have met some of the the nicest people with with Rockstar specifically who I consider not no longer as clients I consider them as personal friends and that's important you build that relationship with clients and to me that that's what fulfills me as a lawyer I don't like the. I don't mind the money either, but the, but the relationships, <laughs> but the relationships oh, is important totally. to me. Yes. And you get to know people, and you know, I was I was at the meeting on Saturday, and a lot of guys came over. Just hey, how are you? Give you know, you give each other a hug. That that's that's a good it's sign. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so, a good way to build a relationship. Totally. And and so before, can you give me your contact information? Then I want to ask you about your cycling pass yes, for a second. But yes. how do people reach you? Okay, so if you need to reach me. My website is uh, Jerry G. Gatto, Professional Corporation. That's the name of the, of the office. Uh, my email is gatto at gattolaw.ca. And my office phone number is 905-304-5535. We do have three locations. We can meet clients in Ancaster. We can meet clients here at Rockstar. And we can meet clients at uh, near the airport at Eglinton and Renforth. And sometimes I run around, but I believe in coming to where the clients are, not sitting in my And you're always wearing your magical hat when you're running around. You're wearing, I don't know what you call that hat, but you're wearing, you you look like some Italian kind of, uh, I was going to say gangster, but you're a lawyer. (laughs) You have that nice Italian hat. I meant that in the best possible way. (laughs) So gattolaw.ca, we'll link to it in the show notes here, but it's G-A-T-T-O-L-A-W.ca. And uh, before we wrap, your your cycling past. I didn't know, my brother-in-law, Italian guy, big into cycling. You're big into cycling. What was your past in cycling? Well, well, uh, I was was trying to, uh, when I was cycling when I was younger, I was trying to get to the Olympics in 1980. 
I, uh, we were training very hard. It was with uh, lots of guys. And uh, unfortunately, Canada boycotted the 1980 Olympics. Because that was so the, Ru- the Russian That was the Russia invaded okay. Afghanistan, and it was in Russia. And the, okay. and, Jerry, I was seven at that time. And, so and, yeah, that's right. And then that was, and that was the end of my career. I thought maybe, maybe I better do something else, and I ended but up... But that was getting, distance? Like what kind of Yeah, cycling? yeah, long distance. We yeah. did road oh. racing, and I rode with You're guys correct. like... I, I rode guys that. like Steve Bauer, Jocelyn uh, Lovell, uh, Gord Singleton, some of the guys that uh, you know have been... Uh, Pierre Harvey... Who's been? Uh, who's one of the guys that is actually? I think he was the first Canadian to to be involved in both the Winter and Summer Olympics, cross country skiing and cycling. And his son right now is a world class uh, cross country skier. Do you don't do any cycling anymore, do you? A little bit. I just I did buy I did buy that new new you know phenomenon, the Peloton. And, yeah, no, uh, I know, I've, I've I know. Trying. We have it at our house too. Yeah, that's right. We yeah, have. I don't right. go on it too often. Right. My wife uses it though. My wife uses it. I look I, at it. I looked at it twice so far this week. You looked at it twice? That's more than me. I think I just looked at ours once. It is good when you're on it. It but, is good. Uh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, I think Jerry, there's more stuff I wanted to ask you, but we're gonna save that for okay, for the next time that you're on. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for all this information. We'll leave it at that. Really appreciate it, Tom. Jerry. Thank you thank very you. much. It's been a pleasure. Hey everyone, so hopefully you enjoyed that episode with Jerry Gatto. If you want to find out more about the membership that we run here, it's called the Rockstar Inner Circle. You can go to rockstarinnercircle.com. About once a month, we have an introductory training class where we break down all the real estate investing strategies that we're using with investors right across Ontario. Um, You can come out to that class and meet us. We stick around afterwards and uh, we tackle any questions that you may have and you can get access to that class at rockstarinnercircle.com. Until next time, your life, your terms.